0: Welcome to Neocast. Join our experts each week as we discuss strategies and solutions for your businesses in managed IT, cybersecurity, government contracting, and much, much more. Sharing is caring, and we've got top-shelf advice to help you navigate today's biggest challenges. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to our third episode in the thing that we are calling Season 1. We're discussing in this season new ruling, the third-party cybersecurity certification now required for contractors to do business with the federal government. And we are excited to have back once again our lead expert, Eric Crucius, partner with Holland and Knight. Thank you very much for being here.
1: Sure. Great to be here.
0: Yes, we appreciate it. And we talked, uh, in the first episode, we talked a little bit about what some of the current cybersecurity requirements for contractors are. And in that discussion, we opened the door to the future of cybersecurity certification. So this last episode, we actually dove a little bit deeper into The fact that there are no current certification requirements, but the government is in the midst of, or the Department of Defense is in the midst of, um, handing down various versions of the new CMMC, which will be the certification requirements moving forward. Uh, So we discussed a little bit about the timeline for that last episode and got into some details. But this is when we really want to spend our time today talking about the details of the proposed certification requirements. So. Eric, from your perspective, what are some of the headlines out of the version 0.4 that was released earlier this month, September?
1: So probably the biggest headline is that there is a real divide between the different levels of certification. So level one through five, of course, where one is the least stringent and five is the most, um, level one's a lot easier to comply with. And I think there was a recognition, kind of how we talked about in the last episode, there's really a recognition by the government that there needs to be some flexibility here, especially for small businesses, that allow small businesses to do business with DOD still on projects that don't require a high level of cybersecurity, uh, robust um, compliance.
0: Right. Within any of the, as we talked about last week, it's gonna be broken down in domains, which as you explained this, was it's more like an outline of document domains, which means that we then have capabilities under those, which then have processes and um, plans underneath those. Uh, were any of them out of character or surprised you f- from all of your years of looking into this type of work?
1: That part was not surprising at all. I think um, it's really based on the kind of the well-tread uh, NIST 800-171. If you look at the domains, they they really match up well with 800-171, which has been out for a long time. It's been subject to a lot of public scrutiny. So I think they, they took a path that was not altogether surprising and, and fairly smart by going down the well-worn path. That seemed to work pretty well so far. So um, I'd say the overall structure is not surprising at all. I think I still remain the most surprised by how smaller companies can get certified in level one, I think fairly easily. And right. we can talk about some of the requirements there, but it's not as laborious as maybe folks initially feared, at least at this point, this is just 0.4. point four. They're, they're, they're the government may look at this and get feedback from around the government and say, you know what, this is just too easy. We don't want to leave ourselves exposed. Right. So kind of essentially level one is a new level two. Like they always say 50 is a new 40, which right. I'm really hoping for. You know, you, you they may just kind of shift that uh, forward one.
0: So you mentioned the NIST 800-171. Can you take just a brief moment in case people didn't listen to the first episode or maybe you're just brand new ears to this uh, type of world Brief moment to tell us what the NIST 800-171 is, and what role does it play with uh, the CMMC requirements?
1: Sure. So NIST 800-171 is a document that talks about best practices in cybersecurity for government contractors. And it lists out around 100 requirements that, or I shouldn't say requirements, recommendations that contractors should follow to really ensure that they are good stewards of the government contract, the government's information. And by doing that, they really will protect the information that is in their possession uh, from hacking and from being uh, spilled out to our geopolitical foes. That being said, even if you're complying with 800-171, that doesn't mean that you're immune from a a successful attack. So the government put 800-171 out there a few years back. Subsequently, the DOD, through the DFARS, um, incorporated 800-171, which up to that point had just been a recommendation or best practices, is now a requirement. So they brought 800-171 into the regulation and said, okay, this best practice that's over here, we have now incorporated this, and is now it's now a requirement as of December 31st, 2017. Right. These best practices have been out there for a while, and contractors doing business with the federal government, or at least with DOD, have really had to be compliant with them for a long time. And the nice thing is that the cmmc really incorporates a lot of 800-171 as opposed to uh, other sources which there are other sources that are out there in this new model but 800-171 is really really the base of it and if you look at the different levels specifically for levels one through three it's almost all 800-171 with some exceptions but if you've already been Complying with 800S-171, there's not much else to do.
0: Right. And I believe in the first episode, we talked about 800-171, and you mentioned that most people, even in the civilian world, are very familiar with those best practices, that they shouldn't, nothing in there should truly feel um, like it's it's hampering any kind of competition.
1: That's correct. And I would say that there are a lot of companies, especially larger companies, that look at 800S-171 and, and try to comply with it. And specifically technology companies, even by accident are complying with 800s171 because these are best practices that you probably see in most technology companies anyway of any size sure certainly the big ones like Google and Amazon and those folks are going to be compliant compliant with 800s171 even if they never heard of 800s171 right. because they'd be operating with these best practices.
0: Right now as a lawyer working with a lot of these organizations where you're helping them really weed through the contractual obligations that they might have have you seen any cases this is just now my own curiosity uh, where something has gone um, sideways due to ignoring 800-171 or any sort of blatant um, or you know glare you said that this, this new certification level 1 through 3 for the most part adheres to 800-171 so I guess let me rephrase the question to mean you said with a few exceptions were those exceptions born out of seeing loopholes or ways in which people were vulnerable to attacks because 800-171 was not entirely comprehensive
1: that's a really good question and I would, I would say that probably most of the exceptions are really born out of what the government did is they went outside of itself and outside of kind of the 800-171 realm, and really look to see what other, what other organizations have, what, what they do. Okay. And are there better practices that we haven't adopted yet or even seen? And if there are, should we incorporate them into this? Sure, and that's really what that's that's really the the genesis of this. What it is,
0: now I'm just curious. Um, given that all that was going on in the news about GDPR over in Europe and so forth, are there other countries' practices that they're also borrowing from, or is it mainly looking at corporations that already exist in the civilian market? Or the they commercial said, market, I guess. Yeah.
1: yeah, DoD said that they were going to look at uh, practices around the world. I'll be honest; I haven't looked through every one of the uh, recommendations or, or, or the entirety of the spreadsheet to see whether other countries were used or not, but they certainly reserve the right to do that uh, where they found out that other countries had had a recommendation that they thought uh, would work well. Um, Certainly the majority of it is stuff that the government's well familiar with. I wouldn't be surprised if during the commentary period folks do suggest European or other country um, requirements, and that those subsequently get incorporated into this.
0: I mean, as you see with other industries, the car industry being one of them, automotive industry, where it, when you don't equalize what the regulations are, it makes it very difficult for multinational companies to be able to keep up with all the different regulations across the borders. So I would imagine that it would be helpful, or you can imagine a multinational company might come forward to say, hey, can we incorporate a few more of these, or can you reduce this so that we're dealing with one standard across the board as opposed to managing multiple, multiple standards
1: absolutely companies like standardization and certainty sure and that's what makes don't we these, all <laughs> yeah it's true i guess it's not just companies it's all of us that's something when you have a dramatic change like we're going to have now and i don't think anybody is saying otherwise it's definitely a dramatic change and while it's dramatic now it may not seem like a big deal down the road but still companies want that certainty and to understand like how is my business going to change am i going to still have a business when this is right. all done and are you pulling out these requirements from randomly from the air? And if you are, how am I going to comply with them? So certainly companies that are around the world will want to see kind of a standard requirement. And also they'd probably be comforted if we adopt requirements from their home country that they're already complying with.
0: Sure. So um, we know that FedRAMP is out there. For those of us, including myself, who don't know what FedRAMP stands for or what it means, would you just very briefly, because most people will know what that is, touch on what FedRAMP is and then talk a little bit about how this in particular compares to FedRAMP.
1: Sure. So FedRAMP, much like this is going to be, is a certification that's required of companies. Um, if they want to do provide cloud services to the government, they have to be FedRAMP certified. So essentially that's what FedRamp is. It's it's a way that companies can be certified to provide cloud services. So it's FedRAMP for short, it's known as the Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program. So again, we're an acronym right. city here, yes. Washington, DC. Even the name of the city itself is an acronym. Right. And um it allows the government kind of uh comfort that it knows that if it's stuff is being hosted in the cloud that these companies have essentially met some minimum standard. Sure. And uh, this is very similar to what we're going to see with CMMC. I almost liken it to a FedRAMP 2.0. Okay. And just because it's it's kind of the same idea, just a different kind of venue. FedRAMP is more limited because it deals with cloud services, but it's certainly an important part of the government's program to keep keep its information secure. But there was this weak link, the contractor systems. That they're trying to kind of tidy up with the same kind of certification requirement.
0: Right. Okay. Gotcha. So someone, so a contractor who's going after these types of um, businesses m- might likely ve- be certified in FedRAMP, but then also need to be certified in CMMC. They don't. One does not cover the other.
1: Correct. Good question. I w- would be interested to see if there is a contract that has. Some hosting services and some things are not hosting. One will cover the other and vice versa, but I would imagine just based on the differences in the certification requirements that it's going to have to be both.
0: Right, or maybe if you were like level one, you could you know get the pass if you were already FedRAMP certified and right. level one would just put you at that level or something like that. So in speaking about the levels, we did talk about this um, in some detail in the last episode, but there are five levels of certification Wondering if you could help us think through what they are and what they mean.
1: Sure. So there are five levels, as you as you mentioned, and the levels are dependent on how much is required of the contractor to do to keep its information safe. So as we mentioned before, level one is the le- least stringent. Level five is the most. Um, level one, they talk about it's just for basic security. It's easily achievable, hopefully, for small companies. It really contains universally accepted common practices, as they say in their spreadsheet, and it only offers limited resistance to cyber attacks. And if you look at the the more detailed spreadsheet, when you when you look at the different domains, which are the kind of the headers, you'll find that there aren't a lot of Level 1 requirements. It's probably something slightly less than 800-171, because you don't see all of 800-171 here in here. That being said, the DFARS clause with the 800-171 requirement is not going away. So I would say that if you're already complying with 800S-171, probably a level 1 CMMC certification is really pretty easily attainable. So that's kind of level 1. If you then go up the ladder, and I'll just briefly talk about each one. Sure. So you have level 2, which includes all of the cybersecurity best practices, whereas level 1 was a subset. And there is some resiliency, um, but this the resiliency that they expect in level 2 is against unskilled uh, threats. Okay. So, less sophisticated threats with some minor um, resistance to uh, hacking instead of limited. Now, the definition of minor versus limited, I'm not really sure. Right. But I guess minor is more than limited. Right. <laughs> and then um, if you go up to level three, they specifically say that level three includes all of NIST 800 171. Okay. Yeah. So, because of that, if you look at one and two, you can probably assume that it does not include, even without looking at the detailed spreadsheet does not include all of 800-171. So then besides that, you have um, additional best practices and you have some resiliency against um, moderately skilled uh, act- threat actors and some moderate resistance to cyber attacks, which is more than minor, I guess. Right. <laughs> and comprehensive, they say, comprehensive knowledge of cyber assets. So knowing everything that you have out there. This is a best practice. Stepping back for a second. Right. This is a best practice anyway. You really want to have... Comprehensive knowledge of what you have, right? You know, maybe not a computer that's not connected to the internet because it's sitting in an off in an office somewhere and unhooked and things like right. that. Although that's probably you probably, probably want to know that too. Right. But if you have something that's public facing or even intranet pu- private facing, you probably want to know those assets and have them mapped properly and have IT aware of them. Right. You don't know what you don't know, and that could be a big problem. Right. Um, that might be the very way that a hacker gets in. So it's kind of level three. And I would say you're probably going to see a majority of DOD procurements coming out through level one through three, just based on what I'm seeing as far as what's right. required. When you get to level four and five, you're going to have the big metal benders who are building the F8, F-35s. Ah. Um, you're going to have folks deploying sophisticated cybersecurity systems, those kinds of contracts. And it could even be a contract to a small business that's doing something that's very sensitive in the intelligence area right. but level four and level five are probably reserved for those types of things so i would say to most companies at least as we sit now don't worry too much about getting level four or level five unless those are the kinds of contracts that you're going for if you're going for contracts that are outside of high technology cybersecurity, sophisticated weapons systems airplanes things like that you could probably not worry about level four and level five but if you're right. getting those kinds of contracts you probably have the revenue to support right. going through and getting the certification right, right. Level four and level five, Uh, looking at four specifically, you have advanced and sophisticated practices, resiliency against advanced threat actors. Mm -hmm. You have continuous and complete knowledge of cyber assets. So level three, you're required to have comprehensive knowledge. Level um, four requires kind of updating that knowledge on an ongoing basis. And then if you go to level five, which is the ultimate level, you have highly advanced practices. It's reserved for the most critical systems, as they say, and resi- resilient against the most advanced threat actors. And it goes on and on. But you get the idea. It's really the, the, the keys to the kingdom, as far as the federal government's right. concerned, will be with contractors that are level five
0: certified. I mean, even in the language, when I'm looking here on uh, pages think it's 15 and 16 of the CMMC document. You can tell in one through three, it's somewhat—I w- I, I dare to call it passive—but more passive um, requirements that you're just needing to make sure that you're you're protected, like put in put in the gates, put in the barriers that you need to put in. But the language. Gets decidedly more poignant in levels four and five, even threat hunting. Yes, you know detonation chambers. I'm sure all of these things are relatively innocuous, but to me, an outsider, they sound very proactive. That is not a passive uh, level to be at. They're looking for people to be sure that you're actually on the lookout for hackers and for cybersecurity breaches and things like that.
1: Absolutely, and DoD has not been shy in saying that we're in a cyber war war right now. Sure. And these are war kind of words, right. hunting,
2: right.
1: detonation. All those kinds of, of words are not by accident. I'm right. sure.
0: I just have to ask, what is a detonation chamber?
1: That's a really good question. <laughs> 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 um, NIST has actually a um, a publication about it, or with it. It's within 800-53, uh, the fourth revision. They talk about what they are, and they describe them, and I think they'll say it better than I ever could say it. So there are dynamic execution environments that allow organizations to open email attachments and execute untrusted, suspicious applications. Oh, so it's kind of a safe place, I guess, where to you can run your spammer. Yeah, your... to open something that you don't think, you know, you know this email attachment is not right, right? Because right. it says here's a list of everyone's salary in your organization. Right. You should open it to take a look, and you know it's fake. Right. You just the 1% chance it might be real, maybe you really want to open that. Right. And the detonation chambers, um, I guess that's where they get to open all those yeah. things. So it sounds kind of fun in a way.
0: Right, yeah. I kind of want to be in that room to figure out. Because I assume they, they need a place in order to open those things so they can discover where the breaches are happening and who's who's actually providing, you know, who's doing that work so that they can track them down.
1: Right, I'm sure it helps forensically to kind of figure out, you know, what the what the latest and greatest that these hackers are up right. to.
0: Whose uncle really is stranded in Nigeria and needs a million (laughs) dollars? You know. (laughs) Ask a detonation chamber manager. You can never be be too safe.
1: Maybe my uncle's there and I don't even realize it. You know, (laughs) know, you got to be careful.
0: Exactly right. On that note, can you give some examples of the cybersecurity controls that will be required um, with the different levels?
1: Yeah. So I think the easiest thing is just to kind of look at the first one domain. The first domain is access control and the capability that they want to look at is control internal system access. And there are five levels. So some of these don't have all the levels populated. Some just have level one and two populated and level two is where you are. And if you're, there's nothing better than level two. Right. Some of them don't have a level one, which means the level one folks don't have to comply with it at all.
0: Huh, okay.
1: And some just have a level three, which essentially means that three, four, and five have to comply with it. Okay. So I like this first one, control internal system access, because it has all five levels. So you can kind of get a a sense of the differences between all of them. So for level one, that would be limit system access to the types of transactions and functions that authorized users are permitted to execute. So in essence, what they're saying there is you don't give people more access to your system than they need to do their job. So that's level one, and that's a pretty basic thing that you want to do. Exceeding authorized access is something that actually is already codified in the law that Employees are not permitted to do in companies. It's called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And for folks who are in private industry, away from the government, there there have been successful um, lawsuits against you know employees of companies who go through the system and go to places in the system they're not permitted. Wow! It's actually there is also a criminal aspect to it, and this is kind of the government aspect, which is not you know, towards the employee right. who could be exceeding their authorized access. But it's um, just saying that you have a system that recognizes that and only gives people their authorized access. Right. The big thing anecdotally with, with Edward Snowden, who is one of the well, most well-known hackers, of course, in our time, is that he was already in the system. You know, He's right. not necessarily, I'm not saying he isn't, but he's not necessarily a brilliant hacker because the hardest thing is to do is to get into the system. What he did is he exceeded his authorized access. Ah. So what this is saying is that you give people the access that they need, and that's it. So that's level one. Um, level two is you separate the duties of injur- individuals to reduce the risk of malevolent activity without collusion. There's the word collusion, but what they're essentially saying is that you want to make sure that you don't give somebody too much power, too much access to the system. Right. You know that song, "Keep It Separated." Right. You want to keep it separated within yeah. here to give people their own kind of requirements, so that way there's not too much cross pollination and nobody has access to too much. Right. So that's level two. This it may not be relevant to some folks, if depending on what, what kind of things they have in their system, but that's that's what they would have to do. There are related, um, by the way, uh, practices for all these, but I'm just going kind of going through the sure. first high-level one. Sure. Uh, otherwise, we could be here all day. Oh, yeah. It's a long <laughs> document, people. <Yes. laughs> so then you have level three, use of non-privileged accounts or roles when accessing non-security functions. That's another example of only giving people access to what they need. So if there is something that's non-privileged, non-security, only give it to those non- Privileged folks, or more specifically, have separate counts for the privileged and the non privileged, so there's not cross contamination. So then that's three. And then four.
0: And I should note just really quickly. Sure. Uh, in looking at the spreadsheet as we've been going along this, those first three are all stated as being part of 80171.
1: Right, that's a good point. So they're,
0: they're noting in each of these squares. So, so none, nothing so far has been a surprise. These are all best practices that happen uh, to appear already in the NIST 80171.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Okay, so go ahead. And then that
1: changes with Level 4, of mm-hmm. course, which has a reference to DIB, which um, refers to the defense industrial base. And that's always been a more kind of more sophisticated program because it deals with the larger core contractors that the government relies on. So level four, the organization comprehensively applies least privilege and separation of duties to identities, processes, networks, and interfaces across the enterprise. In my mind, this wraps up level one through three together. If you're doing one through three robustly, you're probably doing four in a more, it's, you know, in a more comprehensive fashion, but it's playing least privilege, which is what we were talking about. Don't give people more access than they need to do their job. Separation talked about about level two already and then, and then it talks about across the enterprise. So having right. kind of a, a look at it from the 50,000 foot level and just making it part of your cybersecurity program. But I would say if you're doing one through three, levels one through three, you're probably doing four. Right. Level five, network host and software access management is context aware, adapting the security posture to the most restrictive viable settings based on the physical location network connection state, time of day, and measured properties of the current user enroll. role. So this is almost like a system that is adaptable based on the surrounding circumstances and environment. So if it knows that I work between nine and five, maybe it won't let me in at eight o'clock at night unless oh. I get a special privileges to do so. Okay. Or if I always sign in from Tyson's Corner, Virginia, now known as Tyson's Virginia, Mm -hmm. Um, and all of a sudden I sign in from Alaska, you know, maybe it won't let me in because it knows I'm in Alaska. Right. It's almost like artificial intelligence built into the system, I would say. a little bit like
0: your credit card company, letting you know that you're charging in Mexico and you're actually not on a trip there. Right. (laughs) If only. (laughs) Yes. Something to note, though, that these are cumulative, right? So what you have to do in level one, you obviously also have to do in level two, level three, level four, but with each level, you're sort of, you're gaining more requirements.
1: Right. I would say that that's the case. I, my sense is that they have tried to pull in levels one through four, for instance, into a level five requirement, but it's not always that smooth. It's not always, it's not always a square peg in a square hole. Sometimes it's a round peg in a square hole. So I don't know exactly how the certification process will work, right. and if they will need to actually check the box on one, two, three, four, five, or if they'll just look at five and say, all right, if you're doing five, you're naturally doing one through four. It'll be interesting to see how that happens, how that develops, but I would say that those folks who are looking at level five would probably also want to just at least glance at levels one through four to right. make sure that there's, no, there's nothing specific to levels one through four.
0: Now, um, for the certification, is it a, um, a self-publishing, or a, will there actually be a body of individuals or people or a department that will be checking to be sure that you've actually been compliant?
1: So there'll certainly be a um, third-party company, okay, or most there'll be many third-party companies probably, that will come in and be willing to certify a contractor. Mm-hmm. How the DOD gets the trust in those companies, I'm not sure at this right. point, because there's certainly going to be folks out there who will want to do this, who will be qualified to do this. Right. But how does DOD know that? Right. So I don't know if they're going to be going through a separate certification process themselves.
0: Right. Right. Outborn's another, another industry that we can all think of now. There's a lot of ways to make money yes, in the, the government. government contracts <laughs> yes, field. exactly. Well, I think that helps us wrap up the details of this proposed certification requirement. Is there anything, uh, any parting thoughts you'd like to give our audience about things that they might want to be on the lookout for?
1: Yeah, I would say if you're a DOD contractor here right now and um, you're listening to this podcast and you're kind of wondering what to do next, the very first thing I would do is pull up this spreadsheet and start reading it and try to figure out what level you would want to go for when that opportunity arises and see what you need to do to kind of close that gap. Right. What do you need to make sure? Maybe you've done everything in levels one through three except for two things. Well, go ahead and tackle those two things now. Don't wait for a third-party certifier to come in and tell you to do it. And that certification process will be a lot quicker.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for taking us through all of the new cybersecurity certification that's now going to be required for contractors. Uh, We really covered a lot of ground in these last three episodes, and I look forward to our next season where we're going to be covering FAR Part 9, Contracting Qualifications and How Contractors Should Handle Cybersecurity Compliance. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you. Part of the episode, we're going to welcome Ed Bassett, the Chief Information Security Officer for NeoSystems, to talk a little bit about how NeoSystems might be there to help prepare individual contractors working with the government in advance of this Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, CMMC, that we've been speaking with Eric Crucius about. So Ed, we- let's jump into other services that you provide. Um, you've mentioned managed security. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and why that Matters to those individual contractors who are looking to get certified in the cybersecurity maturity model.
2: Well, the CMMC and even the you know uh, predecessor requirements that are that are out there require a security program that covers a lot of uh, different topics, uh, requires a lot of different technologies, all to be managed with very consistent processes. Requires documentation. Requires uh, continuous monitoring. Basically, the 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 oversight of that security those security controls to make sure that they're operating in an effective manner at all times um, so these uh, security programs take a pretty broad spectrum of technology and skill sets and as you can get from the security maturity um, model certification title it's about maturity process maturity making sure that these things happen um, not just once at contract award but in a consistent repeatable way throughout the life of the throughout the life of the contract. So that's what the government's looking to assesses is, is that maturity. So as companies look to very quickly get access to these things that require, again, complex technologies, complex skill sets, the managed service model is an easy way for them to purchase those um, those capabilities. Um, we bring the, the the people, the process, the technology all together in a managed service bundle uh, that customers can adopt and use and pay for on a monthly fee basis. So it avoids the sort of long um, curve of capital investment, recruiting, hiring, training, all those things it takes to build a security program from scratch or to improve an existing security program, uh, you can very quickly, you know, get, um, get to the results you need to pass the, the certification with a managed service model.
0: So, you know, a focus that Eric mentioned when he was looking at the CMMC um, guidelines, I think it was version 0.4 that we were discussing on the day, uh, he was talking about how he was a little bit surprised and pleasantly surprised by the fact that the government really did open the door for small contractors to be able to reach certain levels, at least level one, if not level two of the CMMC. It sounds like using a service, um, whether it's Neosystems Cloud or if it's the managed security, all of these things are things that would absolutely open the door for those smaller contractors working with Neosystems to be able to tackle some of those certification issues. Is that is that what I'm understanding?
2: Y- yes. The the CMMC levels are designed to, to correlate to the kind of data you're working on, not necessarily the size of the company, right? So if a, if a company that's very small is working on things that are not very sensitive, level one is, is a fairly easy, achievable step. But if that same small company wants to go bid on contracts involving sensitive data, um, they may be required to get to level three, even higher. Um, even though they are small company with limited resources, so for those companies right. to achieve that on their own is very, very difficult. Uh, again, the capital investment is very difficult. It's uh, Getting the right mix of skill sets when you have a small headcount is very difficult. So, right. you know, with a, in a service model, um, you can get those skill sets and those technologies in a fractional sort of way, um, where you're, you're buying a piece of it and you're buying into maturity that's already been established, uh, you know, by Neosystems as a service provider. Exactly. So. Very good for small companies. Uh, Not to say these services don't apply to large companies. Many, many large companies take advantage of um, managed security providers for similar reasons. Time to results, um, you know, avoiding a big capital investment, that sort of thing.
0: Right, right. That's great. So you've also mentioned secured enclaves and how they may uh, assist in this particular certification. Can you talk a little bit more about those?
2: Sure. So so we have a mix of clients. Some of our clients, everything they do is federal government contracting. So that means that all of their systems, all of their data involves uh, government data. And in those cases, they generally just take their entire system and bring it up to the, the federal standards. But we have other clients where federal contracting is a small piece of what they do. Maybe it's one division, maybe it's only a few contracts. And so they have a large infrastructure of um, networks, workstations, um, you know, security in place for that at the corporate level that may not meet the federal expectations. So rather than bringing all their systems up to to meet the federal standard, it's often a lot more cost-effective to build an enclave where you can isolate the federal government data and keep focus your investment on getting that piece uh, certified to, to process that data and not bring all of your corporate systems into scope. Um, the other place that this uh, affects a, a customer and their decision of where to put the federal data, um, I think Eric t- touched on is the government's ability to oversight and audit that. If you have that data spread across all your corporate systems, they're effectively all open to government oversight, even though those systems may not be being used for for government contracting purposes. So a lot of customers want to isolate that in a a fairly small enclave. Um, We can do that through network segmentation. We also offer cloud hosted um, workstations. So basically virtual desktop infrastructure where um, clients can um, have a place that their employees can go—a virtual, a virtual desktop, a virtual workstation—they can go to just to, to work on federal data, store it there locally in that enclave. It never goes to their to their corporate networks. So the user is sitting at the same computer that they use every day—the same laptop or, or desktop—but uh, instead of working on their local machine and their local corporate network, they go to uh, the cloud and work on a, a virtual workstation there. So it's essentially a secure enclave. For storing and processing the federal government data.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you, Ed, so much for getting us up to speed on a few of the different ways that NeoSystems could really help some of those uh, contractors out there that are looking to come into certification under the CMMC and um, that are already maybe working within DFARS or may not be and are looking for good partners that can help them uh, achieve that status. So we appreciate you taking the time to talk through the services that NeoSystems offers, and we look forward to having you back when we get back into the CMMC and talk a little bit more uh, specific about some of the challenges that lay ahead for contractors trying to get that certification. Thank you, Aaron. The Neo Systems difference. We specialize in serving organizations of all sizes. In today's fiercely competitive market, is your organization constantly searching for ways to gain the advantage over competitors? Smart organizations are paying more attention to their strategic back office operations. NeoSystems offers scalable back-office services and solutions to improve your organization with a team of industry experts, industry-leading information technology tools, and an advanced technical infrastructure. From software hosting and security solutions to managed accounting services, NeoSystems will custom-built solutions and services that are tailored to fit your organization's needs. Check us out on the internet at neosystemscorp.com. That's Neo Corp dot com.